Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome. We're here today to talk about trade, specifically Donald Trump and trade. Uh, I was asked to give a speech not too long ago, or upcoming at CPAC, to talk about trade. And since I don't know enough about it, I thought I'd dive deeply and we'd have a show about trade. And I began researching, and I am confused. (laughs) I've now been learning about OPEC, XM, NAFTA, TPP, World Trade Organization, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, bilateral trade, multilateral trade. Uh, I've been learning about smart trade, fair trade, free trade, great trade, uh, well-crafted trade. Well, anyway, to to sort this out, uh, my guests today are uh, Ambassador Terry Miller, who's a career foreign service officer, 32 years with the State Department, and served as ambassador to the United Nations. Today, he's the center, head of the Center for Economics at uh, Heritage Foundation, where he oversees the editing of the Index of Economic Freedom. Welcome, Terry. Thanks. And also with me today is John Tamney, old friend, many-time guest, who is the director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and is the editor of Real Clear Economics. Markets. Markets. Okay. Markets Economics. Close Close enough. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Terry. Uh, let's get this ball rolling a little bit. Donald Trump has been president for about a year. And uh, as you know, I oversaw the economic agencies and U.S. trade representatives was one of them. So I know a little, little, about, little bit more about those acronyms, acronyms than I might have let on. But how's he doing? What's happening with trade? And uh, what's, your, what's your take on the first year? You know, the president's done some great things in this first year. Um, He came into office and immediately started the deregulation process. Our economy had been hamstrung by um, what happened during the eight years of the Obama administration. Um, And I I think the liberation of businesses, um, enabling them to uh, get the economy going again, to hire more freely, uh, to invest with an idea that profits would be coming uh, down the road and just to move things a lot more quickly in the economy than you can when you've got a huge regulatory overload. That's an amazing achievement and one that was long needed in this economy. Uh, he's followed that up with tax reform. Mm-hmm. Um, we perhaps didn't get everything I would have liked to see um, in this tax bill, but we got that, that, a that's lot. Putting, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we got a lot, and I think it's going to provide a tremendous boost to the yeah, economy yeah. going forward. So, um, And we've also got the economy going great guns. Uh, the president does, and, and all of us working together. Uh, we've got uh, economic growth rates up above 3% for the past three quarters, And uh, what that means is that you've got a lot of investment, a lot of employment, a lot of the problems that occur in an economy when you've got stagnation going on, um, those are going to go away. Some of them have already gone away. Mm -hmm. So um, I think uh, in that respect, the president has done a great job. Now, you asked me about trade. Um, Trade's a little different thing. And and I, I do have some problems with the direction this administration has taken on trade. Um... 
Trade is the foundation of economics. Uh, the exchange of goods and services among people is, is how you increase prosperity. The United States was basically founded as a, as a national, continental-wide free trade area. And that's uh, what's contributed to making us... So uh, the Pennsylvania, most, Pennsylvania trading with Virginia. Well, uh, that's how it started, <laughs> and, and now it's Maine uh, and Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, uh, what we've seen is that by breaking down the barriers across a wide geographic area yeah. like that, uh, we've created the most, the most prosperous society on Earth. John, I want to give you a chance to jump in on trade. Uh, well, I agree with, with Terry. What is trade? All that is is specialization. When you can trade freely, you can import from others, either from across the street or the other side of the world, who are doing what they do best, and that allows you to focus on what you do best. And when you're doing that which elevates your skills the most, you're more productive. And so tra without trade, we would live lives of unrelenting drudgery. In my case, I would die unemployed, unfed, and unclothed. Free trade allows me to do the few things I'm good at, while importing from others. Wow, I'm really happy we have trade. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the fate I, I, I would do without it. I like you. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank goodness we have yes. trade. Well, well, that's the theory of trade. Is that I want to talk a little bit about how it's actually happening in, in, the, in the real world. I mean, mm -hmm. we've got people that think that NAFTA has been a problem. Uh, China is a problem. People cheating on trade agreements. Uh, the idea we have multilateral trade agreements, which means that people can go through the World Trade Organization, for example, to, to sue the United States for things. And so in practice, though, we're not exactly in a free trade world. Many, in many ways we are, but, but in practice we're not. Uh, what do you say to the people that, let's just pick an example, the World Trade Organization, what's, what's the, is that, you know, and what should we be doing with them? First, what are they and what, what, what should we be doing? Well, the World Trade Organization is the place where governments have come together and, and put in place some basic rules of the road for tra um, trade relations. And what happens is that um, if you violate one country or another, violates those rules, uh, then there are penalties involved. Other countries can retaliate in kind. Uh, the, the whole idea is to create a predictable system where everybody um, is treated fairly and, and you have a level playing field. And um, you talked about other countries being able to sue the United States, mm -hmm. but in fact, it's the United States that has most frequently gone to the WTO to sue other countries. So it's been a vehicle for breaking down trade barriers in other countries around the world um, and perhaps also a little bit of discipline on ourselves. The... Uh the uh, the World Trade Organization was formed out of out of the United Nations. What what was what was the, what gave the impetus was that was that one of the many things that came after World War II? Exactly, it uh, it came after World War II. It started as something called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. You could call, call that GATT. GATT, exactly. <laughs> a um, tough name. And that uh, morphed in the 1990s into the World Trade Organization. Uh, but it's basically the same process uh, going on. And uh, it's, it's just a forum where uh, countries come together. Uh, it's designed to resolve disputes. It's uh, not a place where countries get together and everybody collectively makes these grand decisions about anything. It's mostly a series of one-on-one -on -one, um, conflict resolution processes. 
and um, it's hard to see how that's a bad thing. So you like thing. it and think it's, and think it's working? It, I, I is, do is think Is Trump it, taking a position with the WTO that's uh, adverse to it, or is it a... Um, no, not particularly. No, okay. He's questioned it in the way yeah. he, I think, questions all uh, existing international arrangements and, and a lot of our <laughs> national ones, too. And it's good to question things from time to time. Yeah. Uh, you know, these um, arrangements need to, to stand up to the test of time, and, and maybe they need to evolve over time as well. Well, let's turn to China. That's the one country I, I am troubled by a bit because it seems like we engage in trade. We think about things in terms of economic well-being. They seem to be operating out of a much different strategic playbook where it's not just about economic well-being and not just about developing consumer goods. As a matter of fact, they're not particularly focused on consumers at all inside China, maybe outside China. But inside China, it's more of an industrial policy, including the real estate development. Uh, in the plan that we looked at for, I think it was the USTR, there was talk in there about Chinese mercantilism and, and they were currency manipulator. John, what do you think about that? Um, utter nonsense. Uh, China is one of dozens and dozens of countries that pegs its currency to the dollar. That is a logical thing to do. The sole purpose of money, what did Adam Smith say? The sole use of money is to circulate consumable goods. When currencies have stable relationships, we're able to use them for their sole purpose. We're able to trade more, and in trading more, we're able to specialize. The Chinese are not producing like this to deprive themselves. Their production is an expression of a desire to import every bit as much as ours is. And you look at the constant examples of it. There are, peop there are Chinese people living in Australia right now who are running lucrative businesses solely sending U.S. Uh, foreign goods to China. In Shanghai alone, there are double the number of Starbucks than there are in all of New York. The notion that the Chinese aren't producing in order to get just like we are is defied by not just visibility to visit China is to see this and just in common sense. This notion that they're mercantilist, please, if we want to do that, I can go down a long list of American subsidies of U.S. producers here. But, but, but the main thing is, if countries are, quote, cheating, good. The only reason you produce is in order to get things. If countries around the world, including China, want to subsidize my paycheck and expand the value of it, please, I want more of it, because that's the ultimate. Yeah, but can I jump in here? Please do, because I, I don't agree with that, John. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that's naive. <laughs> I, I have a little problem with some of that, too, John. Um, there's, there's cheating and there's cheating. If... If China, I think it's very important that we define what we're talking about here. If, if China's doing things like subsidizing its manufacturers or, I mean, let's face it, China doesn't have anything resembling a free market economic system like that in the United States. They have a state-controlled system. It's grown out of a totalitarian communist regime. So they have some very different ideas about how the state should intervene and control economic activity that would be completely unacceptable to us in the United States. Um, some people might call that cheating in some way. Well, maybe, but but there's a, there's another kind of cheating when China intervenes to, for example, steal intellectual property from American firms or operate in a way that coerces them. Now, I know they don't necessarily have to uh, to go along with that. American firms are free actors and 
in in every respect, and they can stay out of China. But there there is an element of coercion in Chinese economic activity, and I think you can't let them get away with things like the theft of intellectual property. That's just wrong. Well, uh, well that's 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 the you know, John. If, you know, if you look at the the airline manu or the you know the airplane manufacturers, they wanted to get into China, sell their planes, and Chinese in effect said, look, we'll let you sell an airplane, but you've got to give us access to the technology you're using. And now they're using that technology to build planes in China, and they've been subsidizing that. That's been operating at a loss. And now that they're operating profitably, they're now restricting the market to be, to, for airplanes to be sold only in China that are made in China. I mean, that's hardly, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how else you'd, you know. Well, I, I think you've got to answer each one of those. If China wants to damage its own economy by limiting sales into China, let's not add insult to injury. Now, the notion that the manufacturer of airplanes is free market is laughable. Uh, I, I point to you the XM, ba XM Bank's uh, subsidization of, Bo of Boeing. I point to you Airbus. Let's be serious. Intellectual property, the two greatest thieves of intellectual property probably in global history are Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs. They both acknowledge that they got the majority of their information from Xerox Park. Do we feel sorry for Xerox? No. Xerox had all this interesting stuff. They did not know what to do with it. Xerox is on the way out as a serious company. Um, the idea that you can steal intellectual property on the way to profits is laughable. Um, we know this because what's the, who's the richest man in the world today? It is Jeff Bezos. By Bezos' own admission, he has lost billions and billions of dollars on new ideas that fail. The idea that you can steal an idea and turn it into profit is defied by common sense. Bill, you're in the, in the movie business. You know the, the studio Pixar. What did at Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar, say? Every one of our movies sucks at first. We're only to make what is awful good because we're talented. The idea that you can steal something and turn it into profit well, I, is defied I I, by economic well, history. Well, I do know that if you want to get your movie distributed in China and it's made here, good luck. You just can't get in there. And yet they're buying up studios in California without any restrictions. Well, so if, so if, they, we, uh, can't, if we can't sell into their market, why should we be turning around and selling our studios to them. Well, I don't, because I, studios are privately owned. If you yeah. want to sell to the Chinese, you should be able to sell to whomever you want. But remember, the Chinese are not producing in order, in order to deprive themselves. And so the idea that they're going to deprive themselves of but the my greatest point, movie you're, you're, productions you're, you're, in the you're world. You're making this operate on an economic-only uh, continuum. I think they've got a much more geostrategic point of view, and they're talking about being important all over the world. They're moving into Europe with industries now, and I don't think they're just thinking in terms of consumer well-being. Yeah, Sorry. but China, but China, John's getting uh, talking around a really important point here, which is that when China acts in these non-market-oriented ways, so or really ways, got you now, John. I said that what you're saying was naive. You're not naive, but maybe I thought the theory was. And now Terry says you're talking around. Neither so naive. You're going to have to. You're going to have to defend yourself. Here, Happy buddy. to. <laughs> I mean, the the point at the core of this is that when China acts in these strange ways that are strange to us, and and really the antithesis of our own system. Um, they're not hurting us. They're hurting themselves at the okay. core of this. Um, when when they restrict uh, the entry of an American firm into China, the people that lose are the Chinese consumers who don't have access to those goods or services. Um, 
And when we would retaliate, if we did, by restricting entry of Chinese goods or services into the United States, um, yeah, we the Chinese firm may say, well, that's a shame. We don't have that market. But the people that are the real losers in that are Americans who don't have access to those goods and services that they, they otherwise would like to buy. So that's the, the main fallacy that's infecting the trade arguments, I, I think, including those of the Trump administration, which is all of these proposals that they're putting out there to renegotiate agreements or put restrictions in place or new tariffs of one kind or another. These are all things that are going to hurt Americans at the end of the day and only peripherally are going to have an impact on what foreign countries are doing. Well, what about the idea that you talk about where it's, how great it is that they're selling us stuff and taking our dollars, but we're really – I have two things I worry about. One is I worry about manufacturing, for example. We are seeing fewer manufacturing. We've lost 60,000 manufacturing plants in the last 15, 20 years. That's a skill set. That's an expertise. That's an ability to do things. And I think when you lose some of that expertise, I think you lose a lot. And I think if you think of us as a country as opposed to just a trading partner, I think it matters that we preserve some of that expertise. I I, I don't want to lose that that uh, whatever that is. But the other aspect of it is that we're financing. We talk about deficits don't matter. Yeah. We're financing our purchases with massive borrowing. I mean, the, we've got the federal we got federal debt, consumer debt is at an all time high. We everything you know the, we're we're financing this on leverage. So it's not exactly like we're buying things with uh, with money we've earned. We're buying it with money we borrowed. Well. Um, the, the first two things, expertise you never have to worry about. Uh, let's look at the oil industry. Um, under Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton, they were the last two good dollar presidents. Um, the U.S. Oil, oil industry disappeared, at least domestic drilling, uh, because we had good monetary policy under both of them. Uh, under George W. Bush, we devalued the dollar. Oil got, became very expensive. Out of nowhere, the U.S. had amazing expertise in an industry that's disappeared. In terms of manufacturing, that's what poor countries do. Let's be honest. We used to be, be all farming. Then we went to manufacture. Nowadays, what, the rich parts of the U.S. are rich precisely because they let others manufacture and we design. Apple, Apple doesn't manufacture the goods it creates. Nike has never produced in the United States. In terms of borrowing... You're, you're a financier. Have you ever lent loan to someone based on the idea that you thought they couldn't pay it back? We can borrow. All I know is that Greek bonds are trading below uh, treasuries. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't. You think people are rational actors? I don't. Well, ultimately, they are because in many ways, John, people don't know where to put their money today because the credit markets have been so distorted by central bank policy that hmm. that's broken uh, as, as well. Um, I, I think it still goes back to if you and I tried to get funding financing for our movie or if Brian Grazer, <laughs> the greatest, greatest movie producer in the world, he acknowledges he can't get financing the majority of the time. Markets are fairly efficient here. The U.S. has the most consumer debt in the world because we're the richest country. We are the richest, most productive people on earth. Rest assured, people in Haiti and Peru and Zimbabwe don't have people lining up trying to lend to them. Well, I, get I want to get us back to trade, but this is it. But it's all interesting. I, I think we're living in two bubbles. We're living in a bubble, a debt bubble, and we're living in a government promise bubble. <laughs> and those two things are uh, 
our, our problems. But anyway, for, that's for another day. Coming back, to, did, anything else we should talk about with regard yeah, to China? Yeah, I want to come back to the manufacturing issue. Yeah, let's because do that. manufacturing, remember, manufacturing output in the United States is up. Um, Not by much. We're, we're just doing it with a lot fewer people. That's because technology has changed and the nature of manufacturing jobs has changed. Those jobs that have been lost are jobs that involved a wrench and, and turning screws and, and things. Uh, uh, gosh, Bill, when my grandfather, uh, when I was growing up, my grandfather worked in a glass plant in Palestine, Texas. And I got to visit that as a child. And uh, I was fascinated by that place. It was this huge corrugated metal operation uh, covered probably 10 acres or something. I'd go in there. It was hot. It was noisy. It was dangerous. There were th these hot slugs of glass floating around on conveyor belts, a lot of broken glass out there. Last thing in the world that my grandfather wanted was for me to work in a place like that when I grew up. Those, those were jobs that were um, hard, dangerous, and, and those are jobs that the American economy has by and large eliminated for the good, very good cause that we have a lot better things to do with our time and energy that are more productive. Unless you vote, unless said. I love it. It's well, so true, so true. I'm so outgunned here uh, <laughs> by very smart guys. Uh, I, I, I think that's the reason Donald Trump was elected. Most of America doesn't agree with you. I think you've, I, we live in a little county out in Rappahannock County, Virginia. Page County is the next county over. They had a blue jean factory quite thriving. I don't know how many people employed, 150, 200 people. Not very great jobs, yeah. but they were jobs. And then NAFTA comes in, and now those jobs have moved to Mexico. Now, our friend George Gilder points out, well, also the Mexican peso devalued by like something like 95% during a, a period of time. And that, so there are other factors here besides NAFTA. But nevertheless, these jobs that we talk about that weren't that great of jobs, those people don't have new places to go. I don't know. I, I drive through those towns, too, and it's true. You'll, you'll be driving down the road, and you'll see a factory that's all shuttered and rusty and closing. But you drive another two blocks down the road, and what you're going to likely see is a brand-new hospital with high-technology equipment, brand-new employees. Uh, our economy has completely shifted uh, from manufacturing to, mm -hmm. to a much greater emphasis on services. Now, I agree there's some problems there. The people that worked in that gene factory are not necessarily the same people that are working in that hospital. They're um, not. They're not. We've changed from, from relatively mm -hmm. unskilled labor, mostly male unskilled labor, uh, to the medical system that has, um, requires much more in terms of education, uh, probably has a much higher proportion of women in the workforce. It's the so, next generation that's going to be doing those jobs. Yeah, but... Well, I think it's, for one, I don't know how many jobs in that gene factory, but let's assume 10,000, which is probably overstating it. There yeah, are 330 the, million Americans. Yeah. And so we're, are we gonna, how many jobs are we going to save in the very near term at the expense of hundreds of millions? But I, but I think the other important point about this is we hear about these Trump towns, these forgotten towns and everything, and I think we get it backwards. Towns and cities don't die because factories leave them. They die because the talented people who are the magnet for investment leave them. New York City and Los Angeles, they were the number one manufacturing towns in the early 20th century. 
All those manufacturing jobs are gone. That's why they're rich. Because talented people who attract investment don't want to do the jobs of the past. Uh, Terry's grandfather is instructive. He worked hard so that his, his, his um, kids and grandkids would not have to. And so the Trump towns that we're talking about, they're suffering precisely because those towns clung to the jobs of the past for too long. You look at where there's very little manufacturing, it's thriving in the United States. Well, precisely that is because that's where the talent goes and that's where the investment subsequently goes. But what I'm trying to get at is that there's a non-economic argument to this, to the issues of trade and economic disruption and innovation and change. And, and I think we play a political and cultural price for that change. And that's what I see playing out in what, we, what we're calling Trump towns. And that when we talk about trade policy, you know, I think about good things. If you're an economic policy wonk, you know, you want more jobs, you want higher wages, um, you want cheaper imports, higher quality imports, you want a robust, you know, innovative economy. And yet we're seeing that those sort of things, if, if you look at trade, there seems to be an emphasis that's been put on cheaper goods and higher quality imports, regardless of where it comes from, and less emphasis on jobs and wages. Mm -hmm. And we've just sort of said, let the devil take the hindmost. If, if it can be manufactured better in hung Hungary, let's put it there. Well, there's a fairness argument here that you're not taking into account. Um, when That's the reason I want to do this show. I want to be corrected. <laughs> when you've got those... Straight me out. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can't imagine it was 10,000 jobs in that gene factory. That was but the whole that's, county. That's, that's the right. uh, example we've started with, and let's let go, go there. And, and if, if you put restrictions on that, what you're yeah. basically asking is for every American that buys a pair of jeans to pay an extra dollar in order to keep those 10,000 jobs in place. So you're asking one group of Americans, which is very large, millions of Americans, to subsidize the jobs uh, so that these people mm -hmm. can continue doing what they've done their whole lives, even though there's somebody overseas who's willing to do it more cheaply. Um, how is that fair to the American public? to ask them to subsidize. And these aren't rich people necessarily. These are poor people who are trying to dress their kids to go to school. Um, th these are Americans who may be living just from paycheck to paycheck, and yet you're asking them to take out of their monthly salary, whatever that is, a few dollars, but you're asking millions and millions of them to do that. Take a few dollars out of their paycheck and send them to this county over here to keep this business in place. We, we, you know, we can't have it both ways. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was criticized for calling the, the Republican tax cuts crumbs for the American worker. It was like a thousand But then Trump a... turns around <laughs> and says, I'm going to raise tariffs here, here, and here, yeah. Yeah. to Terry's point, penalizing every single worker. It, you know, the other thing I would point out is that Borders Books wasn't taken out by someone in China. It was taken out by Seattle-based Amazon. Blockbuster wasn't taken out of business by someone overseas. It was taken out by Sunnyvale-based Netflix. Uh, yellow cabs around the country aren't being taken out by foreigners. It's by San Francisco-based Uber. If we're going to complain about lower-priced goods, the greatest competition for, quote, American jobs occurs from right here. And so if you're going to go after that which erases the jobs of the past, I say thank goodness. Uh, for that, for that, but you're going after American companies first and foremost.
And remember, the largest private sector employer in the United States is Walmart. Mm -hmm. And they depend um, extremely heavily on imported goods and providing them at the lowest possible prices to Americans. So uh, if you're going to talk about uh, saving jobs or killing jobs in the United States, well, if you cut off that flow of traded goods, you're going to kill an awful lot of jobs in the retail sector. Yeah, I think the point was made with the solar panels that while you're protecting X numbers of jobs in the manufacturing piece, you're killing 10 times the number in the installation side of the world. So if solar panels become prohibitively expensive because of the tariffs, you're putting those people out of work too. Is that? Yeah, we have one example for which there's good data, which were the steel tariffs put in place by the Bush administration early in its, um, in, in the early 2000s. And um, the point was to save 12,000 jobs in the steel-producing industries in the United States. And what wound up happening was uh, it killed 120,000 jobs in steel-using industries. Mm -hmm. uh, so you always have to take into account the consumers of the goods and services. And in many cases, those are other businesses, not just people uh, shopping at Walmart, like I used as an example, uh, American businesses, American manufacturers depend incredibly heavily on mm -hmm. imported goods. What about NAFTA? We're in the process of renegotiating NAFTA. China, not China. China's on my mind. Canada. <laughs> Canada. We have a young Mr. Trudeau in Canada. We have a, uh, uh, I guess they're Canadian of, um, Trade in ambassadors sort of reminds everybody of Elizabeth Warren. And uh, so we're dealing with that. I don't know where Mexican is. We've got a lot of intransigence. What, where, how's this is going to play out? Well, in my perfect world, there wouldn't be trade agreements. I think as individuals, we should be able that's to trade. That's going to be the last question. Trade. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, let's, okay. That's the last question. That's so NAFTA, <laughs> I, th I think what's got to be remembered as we talk about what a horribly negotiated deal, and I yeah. think we're forgetting that the U.S. is already Hong Kong. The average tariff on yeah. foreign goods coming to the U.S. is 1.3%, 1.4%. Yeah. That's why we're so rich. You yeah. work in order to get, precisely because we exchange with the world, the U.S. worker is the most specialized worker in the world. Free trade agreements, and Terry would know the intimacies or the intricacies of them far more than I would, are generally about opening up foreign markets to U.S. producers because we're already open. Again, that's why we're rich. And so, perfect world, we wouldn't have this, but it strikes me anything that any of these deals are generally probably good because they make it more possible for U.S. producers to access foreign markets. Well, one of the, uh, one of the things in the action agency, the agency action plan for trade was that uh, – U.S. trade representatives going to need to hire more lawyers. And it was not because we were ending up to do anything here. It was just mm -hmm. to get other countries to open up their trade. Is that what you're advocating? Assuming we have to have trade agreements and in our less than perfect world. Um, I'd, my perfect world is I'd rather we not hire lawyers here. I just feel like those who produce are ultimately going to buy. Um, yeah. They figure out a way to get it, and I, it's in my next, next book, but there, there is a very successful girl from China living in Australia right now. Her business is exporting to China from Australia all these goods. They're producing because they want to live like us. You, we can disagree about certain things, but if you're producing, you're ultimately going to buy them. I don't want, lawyer, I don't want to employ more lawyers here. Mm. 
Yeah, trade agreements, are, I think, are becoming less and less significant over time. And modern trade agreements are as much about managing trade as they are about liberalizing trade at this point. Mm -hmm. John's absolutely right. Most trade flows freely uh, throughout the world these days. Uh, my concern is that when we get into a renegotiating process, what it's really about is slowing down those trade flows or interfering with them rather than liberalizing them, as was the case in the past. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of, of trade agreements these days, and I'm particularly skeptical of, about renegotiating any of them. So advice. Trump calls you into his office and says, okay, um, what should I do? Well, I would say the first thing is make sure you're looking at the whole picture. Make mm -hmm. sure you're looking at the interests of all Americans when you make any economic decision. And remember that it's in the nature of the U.S. government when it gets involved in economic activity that it's much more likely to do harm than it is to do good. I think that's the key point. Anytime we start trying to manage these things from Washington, we know how it ends up. You know, you've got 330 million people in the United States or whatever it is. There's a huge amount of knowledge out there. In Washington, D.C., you've got working in all these agencies, um, I don't know, tens of thousands of people. But they just don't have the knowledge, as mm -hmm. smart as mm -hmm. they may be as individuals. Yeah. They don't have the same level of knowledge that all those people out in the countryside working in all the different industries right. have about, about what they need and what they want. And, and isn't that the purpose of economic activity, to satisfy those needs and wants? Mm -hmm. uh, my advice to him was that if we can't buy, if we're not allowed to buy from foreign producers, we can't sell to them. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that uh, open trade is the greatest foreign policy mankind ever created because it gives each country a rooting interest. If you're trading with one another, you're less likely to go to war. What did Joseph P. Kennedy tell his son? Son, war is bad for business. Don't do it. It kills off the good stuff. Um, after that, the practical advice would be that every president has imposed some, some, some sort of ridiculous economy-sapping or people-sapping tariff. So find some of the lamest industries that you can find that are least relevant, that are already heavily subsidized. Throw a few bones to this ridiculous wing in the party that wants to put up barriers to trade and quiet the protectionist wing down and then secretly say, we are not suicidal. We do not like, are not in the business of cutting off the left hands of our people, which is basically what tariffs are. We are open isn't, for isn't, business. Isn't that the solar, solar panel industry? <laughs> yes. That's why, that's why I did not lose my mind and over that, that tariff. And it also is the washing machine industry. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you can have Have, you been, have yes. you been talking yeah. to that? Yeah. That was what I wrote at the time. I said, if he's going to do this, okay, it's moronic. <laughs> it's a tax increase. But at least this is something. Solar, oh, if, 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 if we're going to kill that off, okay, you can have it. Well, I think one of the things... Having an, agency, having an agency that deals with trade is a little bit like having an agency that deals with energy hmm. or education <laughs> or labor. We should probably just not even be in the business at all. Can I get some agreement there, John? 100% uh, agreement. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on all four of those. <laughs> we don't have an agency that teaches us to breathe. And to me, trade is just about the same as breathing if you're not allowed to do it. So you this suffocate would, this yourself. This would be Lamaze policy. Yeah. <laughs> stay out of 
what is natural and beautiful. We have evolved as traders. What is the car, the internet, the airplane, the Erie Canal, the Panana? Everything we have done as evolving people is to make it easier for people to trade with one another. And to carry the Lamaze uh, analogy <laughs> forward, uh, bear in mind that what we're trying to do is is allow people to give birth to the jobs of the future Great. and not protect the old jobs mm. of the past. I think that's a great point to end on. <laughs> <laughs> a crucial one. Yeah. Well, for more about Trump and trade, take a look at our show notes on the website. And we've also got a lot of other notes on the topics that we've <laughs> sort of drove into here. Uh, it all It's all interesting. Uh, you can find Terry Miller at Heritage.org. Heritage.org and John Tamney. Oh, freedomworks.org, realclearmarkets.com, all over the place. Anyone will have me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm looking forward to having you both back again for another show of lively discussion. Interesting people, interesting things. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.